Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. We are seeing it around the world um, in our work in Central Africa. I saw this in those brothels in Southeast Asia, that women are not at all victims. They're not victims of war. They're not victims of their circumstance. They're drivers of peace. Happy Easter weekend, and welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe is off again this week, getting ready for Q 2019, the annual Q Conference in Nashville, now just a few days away, April 24th through the 26th. Remember, details and tickets available at qideas.org. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio, and recently at qideas.org, Gabe and his team asked the question, how do we build environments committed to the flourishing of all women? Last week, we started pondering that question, and we want to do that again this week. Last week, we looked at the issue of exploitation and the objectification of women. This week, we want to look at women who, in the face of oppression and tragedy, are responding to help bring about flourishing in their communities. A few years ago at a Q Women's Conference, Shannon Sedgwick Davis spoke. She previously served as Director of Public Affairs at the International Justice Mission. Currently, Shannon is the Chief Executive Officer of the Bridgeway Foundation. For over 20 years, the Bridgeway Foundation has endeavored to be a vital partner to some of the world's leading development, human rights, and conflict resolution organizations with a view to end genocide. Shannon talked about not only the state of women worldwide, but also about what many women are doing to make a difference. I'm going to start just to give you a sense of um, part of my calling and um, my trajectory uh, in life by telling you a story from 2003. I uh, was one of the early employees of a group called International Justice Mission, run by a man named Gary Haugen, who's had a profound influence on my life and is influencing some of the work that I get to do today. And in 2003, we had investigators that had gone over to Cambodia to investigate details about children who were being sold for sex, young, young girls, in brothels in a village called Sve Pa in Cambodia. The investigators came back and had uh, confirmation through video and uh, footage of very, very young girls, uh, indeed, who, who were being sold. Um, and one of the, the videos in particular, the investigators, you know, were wearing undercover camera equipment and they asked one of the girls how old she was and she responded 11. So we sat back as a group and talked about um, what we had to do, what we felt like we actually had to do in response. And so we went over to Cambodia and worked with a group of local law enforcement to set free these, these girls of Sve Pa. We coined the operation Operation 11. The aftermath was 37 girls who were rescued from child slavery and sex slavery, who were then free. Back at the safe houses, I, um, I spoke with the girls, got to know some of their stories, and the stories were as horrific as you can probably imagine. 
But you see, one place where I had really failed in my thinking, I had decided sort of ahead of time that in us being a part of rescuing these girls, the goal was to stop the next generation. You know, I had assumed that this had probably ruined these children, and it was not the case at all. Um, these girls were so resilient. Uh, they've now sort of gone back and become uh, pieces of hope in their own communities. A lot of them um, took us back into brothels and showed us where they tend to hide uh, young children in these places so that more girls could be freed. So um, I, I learned quite a bit there. And, uh, you know, that was my first experience with sex trafficking worldwide. And um, it was a harrowing experience, and it was one that stuck with me. And I think another thing that stuck with me from that experience was we don't have to be powerless in these really horrific situations, and these situations that involve our sisters overseas and that involve um, our fellow mothers overseas. And so um, while we look at the stats in terms of how we think about the state of the globe, they are pretty grim, and it's hard to know where to start. Um, education and livelihood, 41 million girls worldwide are still denied a primary education. So as I was getting ready for my talk, I was sitting on my bed with my nine-year-old, and um, I was running through the slides, and he's like, Mom, can I listen? And I said, um, okay. And so hopefully I won't give you all the nine-year-old version, because I had just basically restate how I was saying everything to him, because um, it was a little too uh, intense for him. But um, when we got to this slide, um, Connor said, well, what's a primary education? And I said, well, honey, you're in third grade. It's, it's right now. You know, these children haven't even gotten to have first grade, second grade, third grade. And it was really amazing to, to just see his response to that. Uh, women produce 80% of the food in the world, 80%, and they are the ones that go hungry because they give it up for their kids. A lot of times they produce it for their husbands and even for others in the community. So they're often the ones that go hungry. And women only own 1% of land in the world. This is a really big stat in terms of thinking about the disproportionate power of women in the world and how it's relative to how they are treated. Sexual and gender-based violence statistics are terrible. 200,000 women have been raped in the Democratic Republic of Congo at least just in this last conflict. Up to half a million were raped during the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And one in three women have been beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise abused in their lifetime. It's really, really difficult to understand that. And then when you travel to these places, they are moms and sisters just like us. So to, to conceive that this is going on on this scale is very, very difficult. Uh, in peace negotiations, this is really important to me because I believe that women are the greatest drivers of peace in the world, and they are severely misrepresented in terms of peace, peace negotiations. Fewer than 9% have ever been negotiators. They represent fewer than 4% of the signatories, and until recently, zero had ever been a chief moderator in any negotiations but now we're up to 2%. And this is really, really unfortunate because women have this amazing capacity, as, as you all know, to think well beyond themselves. I think we're built for that. I think we're built for that as mothers and in caring for others. And they can often be the very best voices in peace negotiations. Things are changing, though. You guys probably recognize Malala here. Malala was uh, 11, and her family owned a circuit of schools 
and um, they were in an area where the Taliban had decided that they were no longer going to allow young girls to go to school. And uh, Malala, of course, would have none of that. She started writing blogs and articles about how she felt about that. And one morning when she was boarding her bus, the Taliban got on the bus, asked for her by name, and when she presented herself, as you guys know, she was shot uh, through the face, shot through the shoulder, and um, shot again in her chest. And she was taken eventually to a hospital in the UK and survived. And the minute she got out of the hospital, she went right back to doing advocacy for young women going to school. When I met Malala this last year, uh, we were talking about a recent trip that she had just made to Syria. And uh, she said, Shannon, you know, they wouldn't let me go over the border, but I went anyways. And she of course she did. And she said, and they don't have school. You have to figure out a way to help us get some school to those kids. And I said, okay, girl, like, let's talk about what that would look like and, and let's think through that. And then um, her father said, well, you know, Malala's been invited to go to the White House and meet President Obama. And she chimed in and said, but dad, it's during the school year, so I won't be able to go then. And she really did. That was her response to the White House. They rescheduled her time to the White House based on when she was in school and wasn't. So um, just a fantastic little girl. And um, a few months ago, she was named, of course, the youngest ever Nobel Peace Prize winner. So grateful that our world has uh, started to recognize um, people and, and like Malala and other girls. Um, these are the mothers um, and community members of the girls that were kidnapped by Boko Haram, the terror group, um, and have now started sort of the infamous Bring Back Our Girls campaign. You know, the world really sits and watches. Those girls have not uh, yet been found. Most of them have not. Some have actually returned on their own uh, and were able to escape. But um, we sit back and watch, and those mothers show no sign of letting up, um, which is a really, a really beautiful encouragement to me and my work. We'll hear more from Shannon Sedgwick Davis in just a few moments. Thanks for listening this Easter weekend to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q Ideas seeks to help believers stay curious, think well, and advance good. And while it's important that there be organizations like Shannon's, the Bridgeway Foundation, to advance good worldwide, it's important for individuals to advance the common good where they are locally, finding opportunities and resources where they are, and using creativity to solve a common problem. Here's an example. Hi, my name is Jeannie Hunter and I'm the Regional Director of the Society of St. Andrew in Tennessee. We reduce food waste and we feed hungry people at the same time. So we waste uh, in the United States 100 billion tons of food per year. If you picture the biggest football stadium near you and picture it filled from the grass to the top of the stands with wasted food, we waste that much every day. 40% of what we grow in the field never makes it to somebody's table. So at the same time, 17% uh, of Tennesseans go hungry. Um, they don't have something to eat for one of their meals per day. Um, this is one in four children, um, and we just don't think that's great. And so we think there's extra food and there's hungry people, so why not solve two problems at once? Um, so if you hear the word gleaning, you might think of the Book of Ruth, um, in which 
Ruth and others go behind the harvesters in the field and pick up the grains that are left behind. That's similar to what we do actually. We go out in the field after the last harvest is done and pick up um, whatever the farmer has left behind. But we also will get um, huge cases, um, ton cases of sweet potatoes that have been sorted because they're not the right shape and size and perfect little football um, that grocery stores require them to be. We get um, apples that are too small and too big, we get green beans that are too short and too long, and um, those are in big old cases and we don't go out in the field for all of those. Um, but then we bag them into little bags for um, people to take home and cook themselves. We also educate people on how not to waste as much food in their households. For me, this work comes from my love of creation, um, but also because I believe that God calls us to care for the least of these. Jesus tells us to care for them like they're himself, and so um, that is a big part of what I do. Um, how many times does God say to care for the widow and the orphan? And so putting food on their plates is one of the biggest ways that I think we can do that. I want to encourage you to visit Q Ideas' YouTube channel. There you can see more such Q common good stories. And maybe they'll encourage you to be part of working for the common good in your community. Let's get back to our feature talk today from Shannon Sedgwick Davis of the Bridgeway Foundation on this weekend's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. So we are seeing it around the world um, in our work in Central Africa. I saw this in those brothels in Southeast Asia, that women are not at all victims. They're not victims of war. They're not victims of their circumstance. They're drivers of peace. And this is a beautiful thing, and it's something that we must encourage in the world. Um, I have a few personal stories that come to mind in terms of our work that I'm going to share with you today. This man is Joseph Coney, as uh, Gabe mentioned in the earlier introduction. He's perpetuated a rebel group called the Lord's Resistance Army, um, where he has, um, he has done uh, unspeakable things to uh, children and um, kidnapped young girls. He was made famous by a viral video that Gabe referred to called Coney 2012. Um, I will say a few months after that viral video, the world's attention faded, but the, uh, the war is actually very much active and in its 28th year. Coney has persisted by abducting mainly young boys um, for his army, as long as they are a purely a choli. He's very much a purist from a, a race perspective, as he's a choli. Uh, then he will arm them and make them ultimately commanders in his army. He also steals young girls to serve as sex slaves for his commanders or wives for himself. Um, at any given time, Coney has up to 40 wives. Most are usually in the age range of 12 to 16. At the height of this conflict um, in early, early 2000, nearly 2 million people had been displaced by Coney's violence. One of the hardest things about this was a lot of women stood up and started speaking out about Joseph Coney and his violence during this time. And as punishment, uh, he would hack off their lips and hack off their ears to serve as a deterrent in terms of speaking out. I've met several of these women, and they're some of the most incredible women that you can imagine meeting in the world, um, certainly some of the bravest. By 2004, over 30,000 children had been abducted by the LRA. 
By 2008, the LRA had been pushed out of northern Uganda by the Ugandan military, who was pursuing them at the time, and started making their way into other countries, into South Sudan, into Central Africa Republic, and mainly into northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. So those regions started to face terror in a way that they hadn't before, and terror from a different people group that had never been in their country as well. This is Sister Angelique. Sister Angelique was sitting at a mass in 2008 in her church in Dungu, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, she began to hear that the LRA had come into her town and was committing violence. Her and several women fled into the jungle to escape the LRA's violence, but over the next year, the LRA continued to commit massacres in and around her village. In 2009, they committed something called the Makumbu Massacre, which slaughtered 321 people. Those massacres have been coined as the Christmas Massacres, as Coney was committing those massacres in and around Christmas. Through Sister Angelique's fear, she decided that she had to work with these women to show them that they could actually be strong through this. She went home and began farming in her own crops and making a little bit of money by selling them and giving them to the victims of the LRA. She also began making bread in her home and uh, showing women how to make bread. And that extra money also helped her organize some income-generating activities. Her group called the Dynamic Women for Peace Association now does sewing, cooking classes, and classes on agriculture. And some of the women are making as much as $20 a week, which is a huge amount of money in that region. They are using it to help keep their community safe, to do public announcements, and to be able to travel around to other villages and tell them about it. I will tell you that because of her work, she won the UNHCR Human Rights Award, which was a huge award, and they actually took her. She left Congo for the first time. She got to go visit in Europe to receive her award. And she said, of all the things I want to do, I want to go see the Pope and ask him to forgive and pardon Joseph Kony. Well, in September of 2008, she did just that. She's a pretty remarkable woman. I will tell you that um, I have wrestled with that as I've spent a lot of time on this issue, the thought of forgiving Joseph Kony, and um, I have learned a lot from Sister Angelique. So when I think about the state of the women in the world, I think about Sister Angelique, and I am very hopeful for the state of women in the world. Now you'll see her on her bike. You, if you guys ever made your way to Dungu, you would definitely see her because she's always riding around, going household to household, checking in on people, checking in on their crops. Um, really, really grateful for her. This is Sister Rochelle. Early in the LRA conflict in 1996, she was teaching at a school in northern Uganda. The LRA came in and they stole 139 girls and took them away. She ran after the LRA through the swamp and jungle and she eventually caught up with them and she demanded that the captors return the girls. At one point, she had 60 AK-47s focused on her as she was pleading for their release. And I think the commanders, more dumbfounded than anything that she was demanding this, gave her 109 of the girls back who she walked back to the school. When I think about the state of the women in the world, I think about Sister Rochelle, and I have a lot of hope. This is my friend Ida Sawyer. Ida is a researcher at some, uh, some organization called Human Rights Watch. Ida was living in northeastern Congo when the LRA started to move there. 
Uh, she started to do research. She published the big report of the initial Christmas massacre that happened in December of 2008. Bridgeway was supporting her work, and in March of 2009, I happened to be traveling to DRC, so I went to meet with her to hear the latest on her work. She sat down with me and said, Shannon, I was going to wait till I saw you in person, but I got back last week from, north, from the Northeast. And see, Bridgeway had funded some security mechanisms after the 2008 Christmas massacres in hopes that we would maybe be able to prevent a 2009 Christmas massacre and that the people might somehow find safety. So this is March of 2010. This is three months after 2009. We at Bridgeway had celebrated that a Christmas had come and passed without any massacre. And Ida at that point said, I just got back from the region. There was a 2009 Christmas massacre. 321 were killed, over 800 kidnapped. And I think the most horrifying part, as I was sitting across from her and she was saying that to me, was not only that that many people, that many of our fellow brothers and sisters had fallen off the face of the earth, but they'd done it without even any of us knowing. It had been three months. And so sweet Ida, my dear friend, reached out to the New York Times and published this information, and I believe in that, brought some measure of justice to what had happened to them. But just completely unacceptable that that happened on our watch. So when I think about the state of the women in the world, I think about Ida, and I do have hope. After that happened in 2009, Bridgeway took a hard look at what we were doing, and part of our mission statement is to prevent conflict in the world. And it did not feel like that's what we were doing. It felt like we were coming in and patching up the wounds. We were putting Band-Aids on bullet holes, if you will. Coney and his, his thieves would literally just burn down a school, and then we would come by and say, okay, how can we rebuild, or what would that look like? And for us, we had to take a hard look at whether we wanted to change our mission statement and say we come in in the aftermath of conflict, or if we really wanted to be about stopping actual conflict. As we took inventory, we started to ask questions about that, and a couple of major gaps came up as a result of that in terms of, of what was missing in the pursuit of the LRA and how we might be able to do something about it. The first was military training for the troops that were actually looking for Kony. So there were troops that were looking for him and looking to stop them that had been incredibly unsuccessful. They were untrained and they were sort of the bottom rung in terms of troops. The second was communications for these communities. So several of these Christmas massacres happened over a multiple day period. So if one village had been able to, as the, as the violence was coming, been able to at least radio to another village and warn them that that was coming, something might have been prevented in that respect. So for us, the communications, that, that felt a little easier. Thinking about whether or not a private foundation and someone who's never had any military experience would be a part of providing training to a military was much, much harder. And so we wrestled with that for a while, but ultimately as the attacks continued, we decided that's exactly what we were going to do. So we hired a private security company that came in and provided military training to the troops that were pursuing Kony. They taught them how to collect intelligence, how to pick up on signs of attacks, how to predict attacks. Uh, they also gave them navigation tools and cultural and human rights training because most of these troops were still from Ugandan army. And so they were in a land that they were very unfamiliar with and couldn't speak similar languages. 
We also set up those radio towers that I was telling you about. Um, they, we basically went into the villages. They sit on a bamboo stick like this, and they're able to raise them to warn other children, and then they bring them down as attacks start to come near their villages. This has been a great way for them to be able to communicate with each other. We um, ended up providing a helicopter and a fixed-wing airplane. The helicopter, you'll see on it, has these um, basically rock star-type speakers on there. And um, a bunch of the children who were kidnapped uh, early on with the LRA, kidnapped at 11 or 12, are now in their 30s and still fighting as commanders of the LRA. So um, my colleagues will fly out to their old villages, find their mothers or their aunts or sisters, record on their little iPhone messages specifically to the commanders. And then in the jungle, you can see the vast jungle behind you. We know the basic areas of where they are. We will plug the iPhones in and play the speakers over the areas where we believe that these specific folks are located to try to bring them out of the jungle. And several have walked out and have received amnesty for surrendering. We also drop flyers that tell everyone how to get out and where to walk to and how it is possible to receive amnesty if these groups do surrender. Because again, most of these children, most of them were children when they were kidnapped. This is a former wife, and I don't use the word wife in any sort of real way, but this was one of the women that uh, Coney co-opted as his wife, who um, at the age of 16 found the flyer after four years in captivity with Coney, and it gave her the courage to escape and find a safe reporting site. The greatest success, though, has come this last summer. So at the beginning of the summer, we got word that the troops were moving in and putting pressure on Coney, that they had uh, determined where they thought a location was, and uh, they picked up a radio signal a few days later after the pressure was on him, and he had ordered the release of all of the women and children. And so we've had 400 women and children come out over the last several months, which has been a huge blessing to me. This was never about Coney for us. It was about an end to the violence and about the women and children being able to be safe. So everything is about this little girl right here. This little girl who won't be raped by the captor. She was born into the LRA, but now will go to school and I know will be a leader in her community and determine ways to keep her community safe. That again was Shannon Sedgwick Davis of the Bridgeway Foundation. And as you heard, Shannon shared stories of women, many of whom had experienced great tragedy, working for the flourishing of other women, children, and their communities. The hope that Q Ideas has is that we encourage you to engage not just globally, but also for the flourishing of your neighborhood, for your city. That's why Gabe Lyons and his team do things like Q2019, the annual Q Conference, which comes up starting this Wednesday, or in October when Q orchestrates the annual Q Commons events nationwide. Learn more about both at qideas.org. Thanks again for listening. On behalf of Gabe Lyons, I'm Paul Perot, wishing you a happy Easter and hoping you join us again for Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.